name is Rabbi Abram Goodstein. My name is Reverend Matthew Schultz. And you're listening to What Divines Us. And so for this episode, we're changing it up a little bit. And we're going to kind of have our religion 101 and our stray dogma intertwined as one component. Which is directly opposed in the book of Leviticus. You can't mix those two things together. It's an abomination. Right. We're going we're gonna to be abominable? Is that, is that what we're <laughs> yes. doing right now? Yeah. Like a snowman. <laughs> yes. Yes. We're going to be abominable. We're going to mix these two things, and we're going to spend some time talking about civil slash civic religion, which apparently is both the same thing. I took a class on this in seminary back in 2001, and I honestly don't remember the exact definitions. So this will be me talking and learning a bit at the same time. Sure, sure. And I thought civic religion was different from civil religion, only to find out that Matt and I have been arguing about the same thing this whole time, (laughs) uh, which is pretty hilarious. But first of all, we have to to define it. And so we're going to use civic and civil probably interchangeably Mm -hmm. um, throughout this episode, just FYI. Uh, But so, Matt, do you want to take a pass at trying to to define civil religion? Oh, boy, I didn't know there was going to be a test. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I would have pretended to study. (laughs) Uh, right. So my, my uh, off-the-cuff definition would be the, like the practices and reliefs, uh, I'm sorry, the practices and rituals and beliefs that a country undertakes and takes part in that are um, considered sacred to that group, whether or not it's overtly defined as sacred. But if you go against them, you'll certainly get the pushback. So you're defining it as... P- Help me understand the pushback. A system of beliefs and practices. And the pushback would be, well, I I don't want to play this card too early, but I'm going to, like, for example, when Colin Kaepernick kneels during the uh, national anthem. I see. You're going against the civil religion of the American patriotic song, and the pushback becomes you get punished socially and also economically by losing your job and being, you know, just insulted in whatever else, isolated socially by a lot of the country. So going against that particular civic religion um, ritual, you get you get ostracized from your community. Interesting. Okay, because uh, I always found civic slash civil religion to sort of be the rituals of the commu- of the sort of the country mm-hmm. that you live in. Yes, and I, I believe that America has embraced this in a big way. I agree. And I don't think it's just the rituals. I think it's the underlying beliefs that that promote that. Because, for example, um, people said about Kaepernick, this is disrespecting the flag, right, to do this. You're disrespecting the flag. Don't do that. And they'll get very angry at someone if they don't say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, right? However, within that same demographic that tends to say those things, they might also wear an American flag print Speedo. Which, in my opinion, is far more disrespectful. Uh-huh. Uh, so it, it's it's not just the ritual that's disrupted, but it's how that underlying belief is expressed. Okay, okay. The arguments have already begun. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I, I think what we're going to do now is is we're going to bring us back to the argument. But before yes, we yes. do that, okay. I want to kind of offer you a, a definition of I think the guy that sort of coined the term Great. civic religion. And he, his name is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, and he wrote in 1762 this, this work called The Social Contract. And in it, he defined civil religion as a group of religious beliefs he believed to be universal, in which he believed governments had a right to uphold and maintain. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's sort of where this idea... What was the year again, please? 1762. Okay, so you got that out of today's news, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. But I believe there's some beauty here. Yes. Because I think religion offers tools mm -hmm. for governments to, to build really important things. If you think about sort of like the sacred documents yeah. of, uh, of, of America, right, mm -hmm. which I would consider to be uh, the United States Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights, mm -hmm. right? Those are the sacred texts of our country. Uh, and so what makes those sacred, right, are tools developed in religion. Mm -hmm. Also, think about where those texts are housed. In fact, think about any place where we make laws. They're kind of built like temples. Oh, for sure. Right? Yeah. And so we have these sort of, you know, columns, if you will, these beautiful structures, these dome structures. I get, we get a temple vibe. And so in, in my mind, religion is actually helpful and for nations that want to have a civic religion to understand that, like, they're tapping into something deeper here about how people understand religion. And so we also have, you know, rituals around sort of our American way, if you will, mm -hmm. standing up and saying the Pledge of Allegiance at schools, for example, mm -hmm. is part of the ritual. And, and even God is mentioned in what we say for the Pledge of Allegiance. So right? that, that takes me right to the tail end of Rousseau's quote, which I believe yeah. was that the government has the right to enforce these. Right, to uphold and, and maintain. To uphold and maintain. Yeah. So there are certain aspects that are upheld and maintained by certain things we do, but enforcing them gets real problematic. So you mentioned, for example, the Pledge of Allegiance. Right. Here's where I might get myself in trouble. I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance. I haven't since high school, huh. and I will not, because uh, in, in the, the Christian scriptures, it's made very clear that no person can serve two masters. And the word allegiance, to me, is a one master kind of word. Interesting. And if you're pledging allegiance to the flag, not even to America, mind you, to the flag. <laughs> well, I guess afterwards they say, and to the republic for which it stands. But yeah. honestly, it should start with the republic, and then maybe the flag is a handy tool. But um, if you're pledging your allegiance to that flag, that means your allegiance is no longer to God. And that's where my allegiance is. Also important to note, the Pledge of Allegiance was written by a flag salesman in the 1920s or 30s, and that guy, I believe, was also maybe a socialist. So we he's have also a, a minister, too. Yes, he's got a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so when we start looking at it, silver religion being having a certain flavor of sacredness to it, we have to be careful because you can pick up a flavor of sacredness in just a generation or two, and it's not even as far back as 1776 and our other more important founding documents. People will often say, but this is what we do as Americans. We have... We have the, the Constitution. We have the Declaration of Independence. We have the Pledge of Allegiance. One of those is a teeny little infant <laughs> compared to the other two. Right. And, right. It's, and it's religiously suspect, and it is Bill of Rights suspect to force people to say under God. That is directly in opposition to the First Amendment, let alone the First Commandment. I disagree. <laughs> okay, good. I, I think the Pledge of Allegiance is great. I think it's great because it's part of a shared experience where many of us Americans have memories, of go especially in school, of course, is where of, of being together in that moment of standing mm -hmm. up and pledging allegiance to our flag. 
I, th I think it's possible, especially as an American Jew, to have dual identities, right? To say that I'm both American and I support all that means, mm -hmm. and Jewish, and a lover of the First Amendment, which really allows me to be both. But dual identity is different than dual allegiance, wouldn't you think? I, I don't know. I, I think that they're very similar, right? Because my, they're all wrapped up together. Because my allegiance to the United States and that pledge I made to the flag every day during school mm -hmm. commits myself to being this American who supports the values that this country was based off of. Maybe, maybe we're not defining allegiance the same then. Sure. Because That's to totally me, possible. I hear allegiance um, in some ways in terms of a phrase that I picked up in studies of adolescent psychology, which, which talks about you become an adult when you have decided that to which you will live out ultimate fidelity to. So uh, what is your ultimate fidelity in life? The one thing that supersedes all others in your priorities that's, that becomes your identity and who you are. Now, of course, that's, that's going to be a list of many things from top to the bottom, and it's not like you're ever just about one thing, one thing only. But if it comes to a conflict between my job and my wife, I'm going to choose my wife. Mm -hmm. I know what my fidelity is to first above other things. If it comes to a conflict between my church and my nation, I'm going to choose my church personally, and so so it's that that ordering of fidelities that becomes part and parcel of who you are. So when I hear the Pledge of Allegiance, I hear a direct appeal from the state saying, "Put us first. and that's troubling to me. I just don't think of the, that fidelity that you describe as being so dramatic, right? I'm Where a dramatic kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> I take this very intensely. <laughs> You know, like I, I don't think of the Pledge of Allegiance saying saying you, you're all going to do be American first, and then you're going to not do anything else second, other than just be American, right? I, I see I see the Pledge of Allegiance saying we live in a place that gives space to be free, mm -hmm. and so to, to acknowledge what that that freedom first is important, important and valuable. If if that's what the pledge um, said clearly, I'd be a lot more willing to take it. But when I see school children told, "Put your hand on your heart and say, I pledge allegiance," right, right, ooh, that gives me the willies, man. That that's that to me does not sound like you have freedom of choice and multiple fidelities. That's saying no. Yeah, put your hand on your heart and pledge yourself to the state. And I, I don't. And I told my kids not to. Interesting. Well, actually, no. I told my kids they came to me first and said, "I don't." really like that. And I said, that's okay. You have the freedom to choose to say it or not. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I think maybe we, I think we agree in principle. It's just that what the pledge represents to each of us is quite different. Seems, seems to be very different. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a, I'm just feeling like an exposed nerve. On this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Didn't mean to expose your nerve. I'm That's sorry. Right. No, no, I've had this conversation with uh, plenty of people over the years, and it's not like I don't like raise my fist and protest against the pledge. I just respectfully stand and I, I hold my hands together, you know, just non-confrontationally. I just choose not to say it myself. So then how do you feel about sort of the civil religion based around anything military here in the U.S.? I, I think like our soldiers and our veterans, they are often the keeper of America's civil religion. And I kind of love that. Well, I, I, I find aspects of it wonderful and aspects of it troubling. 
I feel like I witnessed a turning point in the U.S. I was raised in a time when the movie First Blood came out and then Rambo, the sequel, Sylvester Stallone, and uh, not often cited as religious moments. No, but, as a, or religious text. <laughs> but, but those movies did a great job in highlighting the fact that Vietnam veterans had been treated terribly by our country. And then when the Gulf Wars came along, people had recognized that and went the other direction to the point where any time you saw a military person, you said, thank you for your service, mm-hmm. which is nice and, and, and great, right? But also it became almost rote for, for so many, and it became a very strange, what's the word? I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like often it was something people were doing authentically so much as it was part of a ritual, you know? And I think the gratitude is completely appropriate, but I never agree with elevating a person. And so I think we thank them for the service. That's great. But when you say, are they the keeper of these rituals? Well, they're the keepers of some rituals, but are they the keeper of what it means to be American? Mm -hmm. I would say no. Are they the keeper of what it means to be patriotic? I would say no. Does the flag equal patriotism? I would say no. So there, there's a lot to suss out there, and it's dangerous to do so because there are knee-jerk reactions. People might say, oh, how dare you disrespect our troops, right? Sure. Well, that's why I would never say this in a big crowd where we don't have the chance for give and take like this. I think thanking the troops is great. It's appropriate and good. But we've also seen troops do bad things in our history. I think the flag is a wonderful symbol of a lot of good things, but that same flag was used to massacre Native Americans in our country. And it flew over the Native American camps and they were told, this will keep you safe right before they killed them. So does the flag represent only the good things we want it to and we erase the others, or does it represent the whole? That statement that I just made would be considered by some to be terribly unpatriotic. And I disagree. I think it's extraordinarily patriotic to look at us our, at our country with all of its faults and still say, Damn, I love this country, because I do. I love it so much, and it is so far from perfect. <laughs> wow. I, yeah, I think... Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> I'm sorry it, if I talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I wonder this. I, I think you're... First of all, I like this idea of being able to critique... Of our country, yeah. right? And, and being patri- in some ways, in being patriarch is saying, hey, that's not right. Yeah. I also wonder the, the level of meaning something has, even with, with its history, right? So, like you mentioned, the flag has a sordid history on sure. multiple occasions in multiple ways, which I absolutely respect. And I, and I also wonder, does that, how can, does that taint the flag? Or is the flag still a useful component of America's civil religion? Oh, I'd say both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As it is, I would say yes, it taints the flag for sure. Um, Again, this takes me back to the first commandment, or maybe it's the second. I lose track of how it's numbered. I know our texts number them differently, right? (laughs) We have. um, So, but one of the through lines of the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures is this. Uh, admonition, thou shalt not have any idols. Uh Idols are such a giant no-no, which in our culture we think, well, who's making idols anyway? Well, the flag so often is the idol. So I would say it's not just against the First Amendment, it's also against the First Commandment to look at the flag as anything other than tainted. 
the flag is definitely tainted because if you say it's pure and clean and perfect, you're saying that this flag is sacred and it's not. The only thing sacred is God. Everything else is some level of brokenness or, or less than perfect from there. And, and that's sort of why you dislike civil religion. Yeah. It's because it, it can be based off of tainted, like, objects, if you will, or, or, or objects that are tainted can be, like, elevated. Uh-huh. That's one of the things that's, that's uh, troubling about it, yeah. All right. So then I guess my question to you, Matt, is this. A lot of people claim the word God is tainted. And what do you do about that? About that, because I've come across this too, Matt. I'm not asking. Oh, yeah, I'm asking sure. as a personal yeah. experience, and and that is is that like like almost anything that we elevate, I, I imagine we can find a, a reason why it's tainted. Yes. And so, how much value can or should we place on anything, object or idea, if yeah. you will, yeah. that has something attained it historically in the past. Oh, absolutely. And I think I would say that maybe the word God is tainted, but that doesn't mean that God is tainted. Sure. And so I would say the word God has been misused over and over again. Again, back to the, the commandments, one of the first 10 commandments that God gives, don't use God's name in vain. And I think a lot of the taintedness of the word God comes from people having done that, showing up here in North America and saying, we are here for gold, glory, and God. In that order, mind you, and they're going to then do horrible atrocities in the name of God. So it's not God that was doing those things. It was humans acting out of greed and mm -hmm. just maniacal behavior, uh, murderous behavior that tainted the name God. But in my opinion, God's own self remained untainted. Sure. Sure. And so I think, I think one thing I'm hearing you say is that in some ways civil religion gets wrapped up in this sort of nationalism. Yes. And nationalism yeah. has its own problems. Right. Uh, I, think it, I think it has value, but, but Jews have never had a great experience right. with nationalism historically. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and, and I get that. And, and I wonder, and I wonder if in sort of American civil religion, mm -hmm. if we could say embrace it a little bit, because mm -hmm. I do like it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, is there a way to elevate the flag where it, it's not say it's it's not blasphemy? Yeah, yeah. To say the flag is is an important object for our you know for yeah. for well, our I lives. One thing you and I have talked about before, and maybe we come back to this in a minute, and I want you to speak to it. Yeah, is that myself as a straight white Christian man in America? It means a lot, a, a much different thing for me to have American patriotism as an identity pillar. That's very different for me to say and do than it is for you to say and do as someone who experiences anti-Semitism or accusations of dual allegiance, right? Sure. And so we're coming at this from really different social spots. <laughs> we absolutely social are. Spots. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so kind of to answer your question, is there a way to elevate that flag without making it sacred? The answer is, of course, yes. And the way I would do it would, by definition, would have to be different than the way you do it, because we're coming at it from entirely different contexts. Well, I wouldn't say entirely, but largely different contexts. So in my church, we have a couple of just incredibly gifted singers, and they like to sing uh, God Bless America on the 4th of July uh, when, it's, when it's a church service. And initially, this was troubling to me, but it's not anymore. And the reason for that is we always couch it in terms of it's an expression. The song is an expression of what we hope for. 
It's not, it's not saying God has blessed America and therefore we're special above all others. It's in the um, subjunctive tense of the verb of we hope for this. God, please bless America if that be thy will, right? And so in that context, well, sure, I'm right on board with that. Please do. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a request, not a demand. And so then I'm right on board. I'm happy to sing that song right along with them. Now, they're beautiful singers, so I stay quiet, so I don't mess it up. <laughs> right, right. So please, now you tell me then yeah. what it means to you and your religious community as Jewish people, what does it mean to you to have the flag as a part of your atmosphere? Right, right. And I think, I think you, you had a good point a moment ago in that often we're accused as Jews of, of having dual allegiances. Yeah. And I just don't, I've never seen it that way. I've always, okay. you know, of course I don't, I, I feel I am, I was raised American, right? Right. Uh, and I, I've, I've never really, I've always felt this idea that like the great Jewish American ex experiment if you will, is that we've been able to kind of marry this understanding of that we are Jewish and powerful and that and that sort of and, and elevated in that identity, but we're also American because because America allowed us to be Jewish the way that we wanted to be Jewish mm -hmm. and not persecuted for it like we were in other countries. Right, right. And so, in some ways, that that makes the Constitution this beautiful document for me because it it, it gives me the space to practice the religion that I choose without necessarily feeling that anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, anti-Semitism is still there. It hasn't disappeared or anything. Yeah. It's just, frankly, a lot less in this country than it is in many other countries. Uh, and so that's that's sort of where I, I, where I come from. And, and, like, and I, I want people to say, like, of course, you know, Jews, and we are all American. But, like, I feel like I have to make that case over and over again so we all can say, of course, we're Jewish and American. Uh, because that's, that's, that's important, that we have a voice. We are mm -hmm. part, we're, we're part of this country as well. And we, we want this country, we're members of it, we vote. And, and I say we, but really it's just, we're like, I mean, it isn't necessarily we, it's we're ev like everyone else. I mean, like, in some ways, many Jews are just American who, who also are Jewish. Right, right, right. And, and it's not as if you all vote in a block. We absolutely Why do not vote. you don't have the same opinions on things. Right, it's, yeah. right. No. right. Um, and even in my own Jewish community, we have vastly different opinions on things. I mean, Jews are famous for, you know, of course, loving to argue. Right. It's a big deal yeah. for us to be able to argue about stuff. Uh, but right, we don't, we're, not, we're not in a block and we're not all in the same mind. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I love the fact that our American Constitution, a, a document that I think is sacred in some ways, gives us the space to, be, to practice the religion that we choose to practice. That's all awesome, and I yeah. like it. One thing caught my ear at the end yeah, when yeah, you yeah. said the Constitution is sacred in some ways. What do you mean by that? Well, if, if we consider the Constitution sacred in the way that humans understand religion, we, we put it on a pedestal that protects what it says, right? And what it says, especially in that First Amendment, is we're allowed to practice whatever religion we so choose. We're so allowed to hear, gather. When I hear the word sacred, I hear yeah. a word that means holy, in a religious sense, you know, right. I don't, I don't hear the word sacred as something that has even the potential to be secular. Well, am I, am I misunderstanding? I hear what you're saying, uh -huh. and I, I, I don't see what I'm saying as blasphemous, but I do, I do sense, I do have a sense that the Constitution is more than just a secular document, Interesting. right? Okay. 
because I want this. I want. I want the, the, the Constitution to be something that's elevated. Now, I, I don't necessarily think that it's a religion in the same context as the religions that you and I have thrown our hat in, right? Because we're both clergy. But I, I do think the same, that sort of like the same human condition that draws humanity to a religion in the first place mm-hmm. is being tapped here for this in American civic religion as well. Um. The first draft of the Declaration of Independence said, mm-hmm. we hold these truths to be sacred. And they, they edited it out because <laughs> it was too uh, religious. In, the, right. in the, the miniseries of John Adams, Ben Franklin said to him, it smacks of the pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> well, but also there's amendments, right? You can, yeah. you can add things onto it, right? You can't amend the Torah. Right. Well, there you go. So, yeah. so that's why that's one of the reasons I would say it's not sacred. Right. It's absolutely not sacred. And I mean, the best example to me is the Second Amendment to the Constitution. I would delete that in a heartbeat if I had the power. Right. Because I think, or I should say, I would rewrite it. Right. You know, I less would make, commas. <laughs> I wouldn't use that weird S that looks like an F. That yeah. 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 No, I would. I think we do need more restrictions on firearms, and we can provide certain protections while also providing certain safeguards, right? And so uh, freedoms and, and protections. But it's it's not sacred. That's why it is amendable. Uh-huh. Uh, if something were sacred, you couldn't amend it. Yeah, I just, I don't see it that way. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> but on the flip side, you do have a great point, Matt, in that I'm off. That's all you have to say. We can close <laughs> it off there. This has been what the <laughs> I'm obviously have two different thoughts about this, right? Because like the Constitution needs to be amended, it needs to be updated as 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 our as our as our values change. Mm -hmm. The Constitution represents those changing values. In my mind, that is sacred, right? The fact that it can be updated. The Torah, I call the living text. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And we update that too, but we don't update the actual. We don't update anything that it says, right? We we take what we've learned from modernity, Mm -hmm. right? For example, feminism. Mm-hmm. And we and we bring it back into the text as like a form of understanding and even commentary, right? Right. Sure. So so. But the, the actual the actual text stays themselves. exactly the same. So now here, can we yeah. get off? Uh, this might take us down a rabbit hole, <laughs> but if we look at scripture as sacred, the first question we got to ask is which scripture, right? So from the Jewish perspective, the Christian scripture is amended. We've got this whole, what we call New Testament tack on, which your religious community would say, well, that's not sacred. From my community's perspective, we would look at things such as the Book of Mormon and say, well, that's not sacred to us, but there are so many millions of people that do. Also, the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church have different canons. We have the Apocrypha. Uh, the, The Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, considers that part of their sacred holy text. Protestant Church does not, based on what the original manuscripts were. Then we're getting into the original manuscripts. There are so many in both of our traditions um, that are based on fragments of, you know, like dozens and dozens of different scrolls, not all of which are complete. In fact, most of which are not. And what we have now in our modern day versions of those is different than they had access to few hundred years ago. And so what we're reading in our printed Bibles is different than it would have been back then. So if we're saying scripture is sacred and not amendable, 
we're wrong. It's been being amended all along this whole time. I don't know if the Jewish religion has apocryphal texts that are accepted by some and not by other. Well, it gets more comp. I mean, I want to make it more complicated, Matt. All right. As is my job as a rabbi. Yes. <laughs> so uh, the apocrypha, for example, yeah. right? What a great thing. So not canonized. In Judaism, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Not, not, not part of our, what we, we would call our Tanakh. And one of them is called Bell and the Dragon, and I so want that in my Bible, but it's, I'm mad that we don't have that dragon book in my Bible. And another one's <laughs> called Maccabees. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah so we, we don't have Hanukkah. Is that in your holy texts? Hanukkah? The, the Maccabees. No, it's in the Maccabees is in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is not a canonized text. Well, the, and um, yet we celebrate Hanukkah every year. That's so there you So there you go. Yeah, so, I thought Maccabees was canonized in mm, the Jewish community. So absolutely not. My apologies. All yeah, right, so yeah. wow. So why? Why do you then? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I have my cynical reason, which is we celebrate Hanukkah because Christians celebrate Christmas since it's around the same time. <laughs> we got to do something. <laughs> right, right, right. They're all busy. Let's get together. <laughs> but, uh, but, that, but as you pointed out, things change over time. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't ever think the Maccabees will be canonized because whatever body canonized our books no longer exists. Exists and won't exist, right? So, so the real question is like we we see in the Book of Ezra how the first five books are canonized, right? Ezra reads them out loud to the people, and that's boom, that's that process of canonization. No, we don't really know how the what I would call the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Uh-huh was canonized. Who canonized Okay. It? Who was the expert that came in, or the council that came in and said, these are the books, Right. these now, are in, those are the, out. For the Christian New Testament, right, right. we do know that. They, they, they took attendance that day, and they were like, all right, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, at, this, yeah. at such and such a council this happened, and then in the Reformation in the 1500s, they're like, all right, now here's what we're going to go with a bit different. But, but bringing yeah, that, bring that back full yeah. circle, uh-huh. the Constitution, mm-hmm. right, just because we understand the body uh, that's that's canon, that's canonizing it, if uh-huh. you will, doesn't make it any less sacred in my mind, right? It's mm-hmm. it's in the process. It's it's always you know it's being amended. Um, just like at one point, our sacred texts, Matt, were amended. Right. At one right. point, they weren't they weren't canonized, mm-hmm. and they were in that process of being canonized. Interesting. Right. And maybe yeah. that process of canonization could have lasted a long time. Oh, we don't yeah, we sure don't did. really yeah. know. I guess I, I have the, I still feel like it smacks of the pulpit to say it's sacred to me is an overtly religious word. Um, and if you were to say the Constitution is of the utmost civic importance, I'm right there with you. Well, I, I <laughs> you do, I do to, say that. <laughs> but to call it sacred to me is saying not only is it of the utmost civic importance, but it also is holy and it also is spiritual and it also has spiritual authority. And that's, that's really where the rubber's going to hit the road. I don't believe the Constitution has any spiritual authority, nor should it claim to, because we have citizens who are atheists. Sure. And so to come in and say, in God we trust, is really intentionally leaving out a big chunk of our population. I do. I think it's a great point. Uh, and I, necessarily don't th- I never really think of it as, as having spiritual authority, though even in, our, even in our own Pledge of Allegiance, we mention God. Right. We do now, but didn't at first. <laughs> and even the original one in the 20s didn't say that. And even that is such a new development in but the timeline I, of our country. I would say that our, our, our entire development smacks 
of spiritual authority, True. right? That True. we really, that Americans have always had religion as, as a big component of its growth mm-hmm. as a nation. Um, and so it's always talking about some form of spiritual authority or, you know, one way or another. And I'm very happy to have it part of our culture, of course, obviously, mm-hmm. with my line of work. But I get really defensive and antagonistic toward that when it tries to place religious authority in the hands of the government. And to have the government say, in God we trust, must be something that's written on your walls or on your currency. I think, no, that is not your authority to use. And I think, and now we've hit a really interesting point, Uh right? Because, you know, I believe that as Americans, we've actually all mostly embraced this understanding of civic religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we celebrate, say, like Memorial Day. Uh, yeah. That's us embracing civic religion one way or another. Mm-hmm. But we also have this epic sort of statement of separation of church and state. Right. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. like, how do you navigate those two things to say this goes here uh-huh. on this camp, but this is clearly over here, right? And so I hear what you're saying, and I I totally agree uh-huh. with separation of church and state. In fact, I think I interpret the Johnson Amendment yeah. much more broadly than you do, man. I think so, yeah. <laughs> and those of you who don't know, the Johnson Amendment is the amendment that says that a, tr- a, a clergy can't support a candidate on a pulpit, or they risk losing their 501c3 status. Right. Which, I, I, and I should point out, I have always obeyed that law. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not, we both obey that law. Yeah. I have I, my problems with it, but I obey it. But I think we also yeah. interpret it differently. Like, I do not support any candidate at all even from my own personal Facebook page, for fear that people would think I'm, I'm doing it from the pulpit. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that's only because I'm the only reform rabbi in Alaska. Well, there you go. Sure, yeah. <laughs> the, the problem yeah, I have yeah, with that is, yeah. is that no one obeys it, really, because, uh, it, it, well, that's not true. Some people do. But it is legal in 2016 when it was Trump running against Clinton. There were people from their multiple religious pulpits saying, vote, make sure you vote. It doesn't matter who you vote for. Just make sure that you go out and vote for her. Well, okay, you just endorsed a candidate even though you didn't you say broke the it. name. You broke the Johnson. Not according to the law. Really? Yeah. Oh so so gosh. people, and, and you'll even have pastors recommending that type of behavior as a means to follow the law. And I'm like, you're not really following the law. You're, you're, you're giving the finger to the law. You know, right, but that's I, I'm so sad that happens. Yeah, me Matt, too. because like I, I be, since I believe in the sacredness of our <laughs> of our laws, then I, I believe in the Johnson Amendment. Right. Me too. But here's the problem: I also believe in the sacredness of being anti-racist and anti-homophobic. Right. And there was a candidate in a race recently. I'm, I'm, I'm being kind of coy with my language because I don't want to get us in trouble. Right. There was a candidate in a recent election who was overtly homophobic and called gay people disgusting in an abomination. Yes. And I will absolutely say from the pulpit, you have to elect people who don't say that. You have to elect people who will protect gay people. And now I'm endorsing a candidate right there. But I, I, I think that's, but once again, you're right. We're splitting hairs right. on, 
on how to how, how to actually like follow this law. I feel like we're kind of like clergy lawyers at the moment, trying Whoa, to figure that would out be the best Law and Order franchise <laughs> episode ever. How to navigate this Johnson Amendment, but it, it does lead to a bigger problem of when are we celebrating sort of this idea of civil religion, and then when are we celebrating this idea of separating the church and the state? Right. Right. I don't know. I don't know either. It's it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, but I do try to follow the Johnson Amendment to the best of how I understand it. Me too. And so do yeah. you. And I really get frustrated by, by clergy who who don't or right. or who step and I around know, it. I know yeah. of of churches that overtly say vote for Trump. Sure. And it seems to be more on the conservative side, but not not exclusively. That they will just name the candidate and say do this. And the fact of the matter is there's no enforcement of the Johnson Amendment. Now I still follow it because I don't want to be that guy. You know? Well let's okay, so this this is why I won't so let's talk about enforcement for a moment. Sure. Right? You're right. There is no enforcement for the Johnson Amendment. Mm-hmm. I don't think you and I will ever meet anyone that's ever been enforced through the right. Johnson Amendment. Yeah, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. And if you don't consider this text somewhat sacred, I think that's that's the issue, right? But because the way that I value our laws mm-hmm. is is uh, is of a level of I, I I'm not going to say like religious in terms of how I experience Judaism, but of a level of sacredness for our American experience, then I follow the laws because of that, right? And that's when you elevate the Constitution, mm-hmm. you you ask people to follow it, whether it's being enforced appropriately or not. Now, yeah. I think you can totally like rip apart that argument, Matt, and, and you might. Uh, but that's but that's one of the reasons why I believe civil religion is so important because it taps into something other than well, because it's not enforced. Well, I'm going to break it, hmm. and I think that's why right, I like right. the way the Constitution is elevated in our country. I think of. When I think of civil religion, though, I like having the Constitution because, in my opinion, so frequently the Constitution is a force against civil religion. No, really? Because civil religion (laughs) is not written out in precepts that are agreed upon by a broad community. It simply happens. It bubbles up from shared behaviors. And there might be documents and events that really cause a tsunami within it. But for the most part, it's things that just sort of start happening and... Frequently, what that becomes is the, the, the sacredness, the elevation of the majority. You know, there are so many of us that all want to gather on Memorial Day and cook hot dogs and sing God Bless America and fly the flag. And that becomes part of the silver religion, part of what we're all doing with our rituals. And that part there, so far, none of it's been bad. But then you start working other things into it, right? We're like, and we're also going to just take a moment to sing the second verse of our national anthem, which does include disposing of the savages, right? Sure. And then we're going to just take a little time to mention how we're getting a little bit upset that these Asians are coming in and taking our jobs. And these, you know, these other aspects that start bleeding their way into the silver religion that hurt people. So what I'm hearing you say is that it's hard to separate what I would say would be civil religion and probably what we would call white nationalism. In, in, in America, absolutely. And I think that's true in any country with its own civil religion that aspects seep into it that become harmful to lots of people. And it's probably based on each country. It's different things. You know, it might not be white nationalism. It might be Hutu as opposed to Tutsi. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, sacredness. One is above and one is below. Well, now what are we going to do about that together? Right? And in our country, civil religion became 
empowered by structural religion. And that's one of the main reasons we had genocidic, genocidal tendencies toward Native Americans, because the Christian church allowed itself to become co-opted by the civil religion and manifest destiny happened, and the Christian church became complicit in murder. So, so from my perspective, <laughs> so very different than the Jews. So different, yeah. yeah. From my perspective, civil religion is a great danger that can turn my religion into a monstrosity. And so I've got my shields up against it. Wow, because I just want to like I want to like embrace it, which I think is appropriate for <laughs> Jewish people who have been told you're not quite American enough, right? Right. So you can right. use these symbols and rituals to protect yourself, also to redefine what patriotism means. Look, patriotism. Where's a yarmulke? Yeah. You oh, know, ooh, there ooh. you go. <laughs> I love that. That's your tagline. Yeah. <laughs> so, so for you to say those things is great. But if I were to say patriotism carries a cross. That's right there. That's the conquistadors. We can't do that again. You're gonna have to bleep me out again. <laughs> oh, I already, you've already cursed numerous times. You don't even. We don't even realize. Yes. Oh, sorry, potty mouth. It's okay, I the pandemic. I've I been love, isolated. I love our bleeping uh, sound. I do so. too. I do too. <laughs> so, so yeah, for the Christian Church to be caught up in civil religion is dangerous because we are far and away the my, the majority religion in our country. And that just, there's a reason we have separation of powers in the branches of government, and there should be a reason we have the separation of powers between church and state. Separating church and state is important to keep the Christian church checked. We don't enforce that frequently against synagogues because we have kept that power away from you already. I'm sorry to say, you know, that's not a good thing. But no one ever thinks, oh boy, in America, we better be careful about Buddhist influence, right? It's just not enough people that make up that population. And it's not enough of what has been articulated as part of our history. It's been there, but it just hasn't been allowed to be in the spotlight. And so it's, uh, it's just too dangerous for us. So, so Matt, pretend you and I suddenly were like way more famous and powerful than we ever. <laughs> I was already imagining that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were asked uh, by the powers that be to sort of like enforce, or, or I think enforce actually is not necessarily the best word, but to create a civil religion that both protects and and elevates sort of the religious co- and, and sort of ritual components of our country, while preventing white nationalism or sort of other or, or Christianity to seep in there and sort of muck it all up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, what would we do? Like, how, how would we do that if we were asked that, I'm not sure to do I that understand test? the task. Could you say that again? Right. What if you, Matt, could be proud of, mm-hmm. of civil religion? Okay. Uh, what would that look like? Well, in some ways, it's just the way I live it out. So on the 4th of July, I celebrate the good aspects. The barbecues. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, but also, you know, the, the, the Bill of Rights, uh, for the most part, I'm right, right there celebrating it. You know, we still have that one. I think it's the, the Third Amendment where you can't be forced to quarter soldiers. I'm like, hey, we don't, do we need that anymore? You know, maybe set that aside. I don't. We live here in a town that's almost entirely military people, and none of them have ever stayed in my guest room. I think, I think we're safe. We're, <laughs> Um, but by celebrating those good parts and also celebrating those aspects of it which are aspirational. We do try so hard to provide liberty and justice for all. Now, we fail uh, daily, but we try, and I celebrate that attempt. I celebrate that goal. So 
that's where I where I love the silver religion. There there are parts of it that I think are great, and um, I, I just try not to be a cynical jerk about the parts that are troubling. I like that term you celebrate. I, I like that. I yeah. think we should be celebrating these components mm-hmm. of our of our of our nation, if you will. How about you? What would you do with that same question? Oh man, uh, I would. I, I, I really. I think I would really try to heighten the understanding that, like these these civil these rituals that we do as Americans are valuable mm-hmm. and important, and they they have a zing that help us sort of like give us a shared experience. Yeah. Uh, and I I want to like I would want to like highlight that that mm-hmm. that when we celebrate the civil religion of our of our country, we're celebrating sort of like our values and and what where we came from and what we can be mm-hmm. and how how we can be like a light. Onto other nations, if mm-hmm. you will, mm-hmm. you know, and I love that, and I, and I would want to see more of that. You're, there is a good, you're right to be fearful of people sort of running away with that and, and other values seeping in. Yeah. But in my mind, like the values of our of our of our, <laughs> the founding fathers, right? What what a religious way to refer right. to these people that our, our that, patriarchs that felt that felt <laughs> yeah. that it was too much of like a, a smack to the pulpit, right? We call yes. them the founding fathers, right? Right. I I love what they believed in. I love their values, mm-hmm. and I love how how hard they fought for them. And I want to continue that ritual, as we define ritual, as yeah. a, you know, as a design experience, uh, over, over and over again in, in our country. So, allow me to be a jerk again. Yes, yes. Because I I love everything you just said, and and I think there's aspects of awesomeness to it all. But again, it, it points out so well how civil religion can lead us to false narratives. Okay. And when you say, I loved their values yeah. of our founding fathers. I love their values. Except they're all racist. <laughs> they had slaves. How many of them owned slaves? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the one that I wrote... see where you're going. <laughs> so you're going with this. You know, when they say liberty for all people, that God made everyone yeah, for yeah. all these things, and he owned slaves and fathered children with his Hailed slave, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, which implies... It implies consent, which probably is not the case, right? right, I, mean, right. I, I mean, so to say we love their values, I say no. No, I'm sorry. That's not an accurate statement. I love some of their values. Okay. And I loved how they articulated many of the values to which they aspired. And I know that doesn't look good on a bumper sticker, but, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, we're called to go beyond bumper sticker theology and bumper sticker civil practice and to say sticker theology yeah. might be a good segment <laughs> you get five words that's yeah, all that's yeah, all over. Yeah. yeah so so yeah i can't say that i love the founding fathers values because not only did they overtly practice slavery but they they entrenched it sure i totally understand that so so it's yeah so but it's, the values but I, i'm hearing you struggle <laughs> and that's <Yeah>. yeah. <laughs> But that's that's part of the value, yeah. right? Is is the struggle? Yes, I, but here's here's my problem. Then I feel that civil religion does not value struggle. Ah. Civil religion values obedience and silence, and it values people going along with the majority. I understand what you're saying. And, I get it. And, uh, yeah. and someone that stands up and says, "Wait a minute, Mount Rushmore is a horrible." sacrilegious thing because it took a holy site and it blew it up with dynamite and put oppressors' faces on it. Right? Right. If you say that on the 4th of July, you're going to get hot dogs thrown at you. And, and civil religion does not like dissent. 
See, that's, I don't know, maybe it's my Jewish background of always arguing about everything, yeah. but, like, the struggle for me is the most important part, right? Like, like I, feel, I feel like a component of civil religion is a national conversation over, is this still right or not? Yeah, that's great, but that's not, but it's, civil religion is working against that conversation. I think civil religion like, seeks to shut it down. It fires Colin Kaepernick. It doesn't say, thank you for your perspective. So I think it's um, civil religion is the thing that we're trying to change, and and it's trying to silence that attempt. Yeah, and let's bring it back to to Colin Kaepernick real quick, mm-hmm. uh, because I I have utmost respect for what he did, and he was respectful too, right? Right. He yeah. he, he went down on his knee, uh-huh. which was a, a very respectful thing to do. Right. And and then there was, and then there was this uproar mm-hmm. about him. But there's plenty of religions, for example, who choose not to you know salute the flag. Right. Or choose yeah. yes, mm-hmm. and those and that seems to that seems to have gotten a free pass. It's interesting, yeah. I think Amish people, I think Quakers don't. I do believe Jehovah stuff. Witnesses don't I think do you're right. Yeah. yeah, and so if he were a Jehovah's Witness and refused to stand, would would the pushback be the same, or was it simply because he was doing it for black people? And that's another aspect of American civil religion is try to keep certain populations quiet and powerless. Where I think we, we we're why we're so different is because yeah. you're at where the rubber meets the road. I'm, I'm I'm way up here at well how beautiful it can it can be like the aspiration of it. Because I think what happened in reaction to to Colin bending his knee was not civil religion. It it, oh, it, it was okay. it was hate, right? And you're saying those two things are necessarily different. Yeah, yeah. And, and so <laughs> what I'm saying is that like the reaction that he gave was I thought beautiful in, yeah. a, in a perfect way to to protest what's happening. And the reaction that occurred because of it, I felt it had nothing to do with civil religion oh, and, and okay. everything to do with just a feeling, of, you know, a place of hate. Well, see, I think that hate becomes one of the pieces of the great mosaic that is civil religion. And you're 100 percent right. And so we'll, we, look at yeah. Nazi Germany, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, if we look at civil religion and say let's let's have this civil religion minus all the hate, I'd be much more likely to join in. You that's know? what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but it, that's but what yes, I'm trying to say. But that's not what it is. Right. Right. If, but, if that's what it were, I would be happy to join in. But it's not. It's not at all. And other countries. You mentioned Nazi Germany. I mentioned Rwanda before. Uh, other countries have allowed that civil religion to gather too much momentum with too much hate, and the results are just abysmal. And so, so I've always got the brakes on full. Yeah, I just, I, I like, I want to be aspirational here yes. for a little bit longer. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I agree with being aspirational. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I, re, I and also I respect, I respect your on the ground sort of understanding of civil religion. I feel though that. If, if we say civil hate can kind of get wrapped in civil religion, which, as we both pointed out, has happened throughout history and continues to happen today, mm-hmm. I feel like celebration and love and sort of this, this beautiful shared experience can also get wrapped into it if we work at it. Oh, 100%. Yes. So yep. I, I think you and I every day go out and do our best to make civil religion a better thing. Right. Yeah. Th- yes. I'm totally on board yeah. with that. Yeah. And in fact, not just civil religion. I think you and I both do that with our religion religion. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. We do. We, we each, do. We each look with pretty clear vision at our own religions and say, okay, we've, we've got some work to do. It's not perfect. Right. And so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but no, I know I do not. that. So, yeah, I think I, I would totally agree with that, that being aspirational 
is a wonderful thing. It's one of the reasons I liked President Obama, for example. His rhetoric had a lot of that. Right. Your policies, right. you can, uh, I don't want to talk about policy here because <laughs> that gets to be a whole thing. Yeah. But his rhetoric certainly used that language of hope and aspiration. I'm totally on board with that. So I would argue, Matt, that while, while civil religion when the, on the ground can, can, can be bad, Right, yeah. and can be used, I, I would say, in a hateful way. Unfortunately, yeah. you and I are also there on the ground, mm-hmm. trying to make it better. Yes, uh, because we can't make it disappear. It's always going to be here. So right. All we can right. do is hope to, to make it kind and compassionate. Right. And based in some form of fact. And then still argue, and, and hopefully encompass some sort of argument or struggle. Because <laughs> that's fun. Because <laughs> that's fun. That's what we need to do. Yeah. But that's why I love the fact that we can put amendments onto the Constitution. Sure, yeah. And, and, still, and, I, and that's why I still consider the Constitution to be sort of that kind of a sacred document. Now, I, as you pointed out, I don't necessarily think it to be like sort of like a spiritual experience yeah, the yeah. way some people consider sacred. But when I, and I think maybe when I'm saying sacred, I mean elevated. Uh-huh. Elevated as a, as, a, as a component of what we consider valuable for yeah. our country. But as you point out again, when things have a difficult history, it becomes muddied in order to understand how to elevate something like our flag. Right. Yeah, it does. And I don't, I don't claim to know the right way to do it. Um, but I, I don't, I don't yeah. know either. But what I believe is that a conversation and acceptance mm-hmm. that not everything is always great and yeah. that everything need, need to understand, you need to understand the struggle before you can really, I think, accept how valuable something can be is, yeah. is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, for example, look at the, the Japanese internment camps. Right. I didn't know about that in school. Mm-hmm. I only learned about that later. It wasn't taught in school. But as we grow up as a country, we've come to, to accept the fact that we need to look back at this and see yeah. how this was bad. Yeah. And this was not okay. And we can't whitewash, whitewashing it was even worse. Mm-hmm. We have to accept that we did something that was, that was shameful and realize and, that it was bad and see what we can do to make it better. Yeah. Yeah. And, that's, and that's, for me, that is the part of the sacredness. Okay. I, if that's how you're defining sacred, I could jump on board with that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I came in with, with uh, I've just got a different view of what it means to be sacred. But yeah, I, I, I think we need like a whole uh, a religion 101 on, on how we define sacredness. That's yeah, going to be sure. an argument right there. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I just shrugged and then I forgot you can't shrug on a microphone. <laughs> right. All right. Well, you have any other uh, thoughts about... Uh... Oh boy, you know we could go on for days. I'm sure. Let's let's uh, let's call that good for today, and then maybe we revisit it because I guarantee you, within within the year, there's going to be some new issue that comes up that touches right on this same. Yeah, so. yeah. So I think one thing will be really great for us to do is that when a civil or civic religion. Yeah. Area pops up into our uh, maybe our, our news mm-hmm. uh, cycle that you and I should talk about that. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Let's pull that up the next time it comes through and we can put it against the relief of what we talk about. Yeah, yeah. yeah for we sure. can see how our ideas hold up. Yeah. All right, so we're going to move into a new segment that we developed that we're calling, uh, what are we calling it again? Your Religious Toolbox. Thanks, Matt. Your Religious Toolbox. So this, the idea of this segment is to give you tools uh, to help work with or manage people who may be, I think, I would say abusing yeah. uh, religious mandates or religious practices or values. Mm-hmm. Does that seem right? I think so, and I want to start it with the preface that I think you and I are both going to kind of articulate 
It's going to be aspirational. I'm going to say things that I think you should do, even though I personally fail at these things very frequently. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. All right. And we're going to talk about the vaccine. Yeah. Uh, It's up, you know, where it's available here in Alaska. Anyone above the age of 12 at the moment can. My daughter got her first Pfizer shot this morning. She's 13, and it was a beautiful moment. Right. Right. And so, but we, of course, have heard religious arguments against it. Yeah. And we want to provide you with tools on what to say to someone who might be against it because mm-hmm. of religious reasons. And, and I'm guessing that most of the people listening are more or less on the same page that you and I are that we're yeah. pro-vaccine. Yeah. And so yeah. we're not going to be preaching to the choir, but rather imagine you have a coworker who says to you, well, as a, as a Christian, you shouldn't do this, you know. What might you say in response? How could you talk to them? What kind of toolbox can we give you so that you're ready to respond in a way that's um, effective, hopefully? Sure. Matt, I'm going to say right now that in the Jewish world, we seem to be more of this vaccine than in the Christian world. So I'm going to give you more space to speak, (laughs) I think, than myself. Well, you know, uh, I think demographically the main the biggest locus of vaccine resistance is the white evangelical church. I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's what the demographics point to. The the evangelical church has morphed over the years and become something quite different now than it even was when I was in college 20, 25 years ago. Um, And what it's become is something that troubles me greatly. And one of the things about it that troubles me is there tends to be... um, Uh, anti-science thread to it that needs to be addressed. And this is one of those times. Not only anti-science, meaning they're willing to put science aside, but also thinking that somehow faith will trump science. I choose that word poorly. (laughs) You know, I don't want to mean, I don't mean to put a political thing in there, but choosing to think that your faith is somehow stronger than the science. We see miracles in scripture But the reason they're such a big deal in scripture is because they're so very rare. You can't base your healthcare system on maybe a miracle will happen, right? So when our church made the decision to have an indoor worship service that is open only to those who are vaccinated, who are vaccinated, we've gotten quite a bit of pushback, almost none of it from anyone who's ever set foot in the building before. (laughs) Wow. Because a local gossip blog that some people think you must read uh, picked it up and uh, they ran it. And so a whole bunch of that readership just came on and spammed our Facebook page to say, hey, you shouldn't do this. And one of the threads of what they say is, why would you get the vaccine? Isn't your faith going to keep you safe? So wait, hold on. I'm I'm confused. So these are people who are who dislike your poli- your your church's policy. They dislike the church policy. And bear in mind, we have two services. One is outdoors; anyone can come to it, whether you're vaccinated or not. One is indoors; that one only if you're vaccinated. Right. And right. so people also you can all watch it online. If you're not vaccinated, you want to participate in the eleven o'clock. You can do it online. And you, and you got spammed on your Facebook account for people who felt like you should be open to all people, all people inside, right. not just vaccinated people inside. Correct. And one of their arguments is, where's your faith? Isn't your faith going to keep you safe from that? So to take this back to the religious toolbox thing, if someone says that to you, why would you need the vaccine? Isn't your faith going to keep you safe? I think one common response um, before arguing back. My, my basic knee-jerk reaction is to argue at them hard and prove them wrong and then dance on their argument's grave, right? 
that is ineffective. It doesn't do any good. That, that just makes two people fight. So this is where I'm being hypocritical and telling people to do something I fail at. Start by listening. Ask them why they think that. Why do you think that faith will keep us safe from the vaccine, I mean, from the pandemic? Why do you think that faith will keep you safe from the pandemic? And do you think it'll keep you safe from all the other things? Does faith guarantee that you won't get sick? See what they say. If they say yes, then ask them, have you ever been sick? Or do you know anyone of faith who has ever died? Right? I mean, do you, do you ask them, do you think that of the, how many people have died of COVID this year? I mean, since it started, do you know? Is it a million people? In, I mean, 500,000 Americans in have the died. US? Okay, so yeah. do you think all of those people had no faith? Did none of them have faith at all, and that's why they died? If they had faith and they still died, then, then maybe the vaccine can still play a role in keeping us safe. I think listening goes a long way, and rather than saying to them that uh, all the reasons why you think it's good, to phrase it as a question can be so much more effective. And, and again, I, I'm an arguer, and so it's hard for me to do that. I fail at that a lot, particularly if the other person's argument seems to be based in bad theology, because I spent a lot of my time in that world, and so I'm like, I've, I've run out of patience for some of those, some bad theology. And um, if it's devoid of fact or compassion, then I, I, I find myself in a season of my life where I've got less patience for that. And I, I say this as a confession, not as a boast. You know, it's, it's something I need to improve on. I think the pandemic has eroded my patience for certain types of conversation. I think it's a, wouldn't that be like a good thing though? I feel like half the people that have, make these comments mm -hmm. online are really doing it for the lulls, right? They're not, right. they're trolling you, right? right? They're not necessarily going to have a reasonable or logical understanding of the situation. Yeah. They just, they're getting on the bandwagon yep, of making true. fun of your church. And I should say most of them, 99% of those comments, I did not respond to. One of them sits on our city assembly. <laughs> and so I responded to her. Um, okay. And one of them, um, while she is not a member of the church, she will attend online frequently. So I had a good conversation with her to the extent that she willingly chose to edit her comment and make it far less confrontational and far kinder. So I saw that as a, as a successful a conversation. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not so much with our assembly person. But <laughs> right. You know. uh, but what are you going to do? So, but at least I felt it was important to offer a counter perspective to uh, an elected official. So, um, so I, but I think listening first, being patient and kind. In the Christian scriptures, love is patient, love is kind, love does not boast. And so that, those are some good starting points for arguments uh, and conversations to, about these things. What about you? I've been talking too much. You take the turn. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, us, us Jews have a healthy fear of everything. So uh, yeah. <laughs> COVID-19, which is something, another thing to be afraid of. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we've really embraced the vaccine, at least, at least in many of the Jewish communities have, have embraced the vaccine mm -hmm. uh, more, so, more so than I would say other, other religious groups. Uh, certainly there are pockets of Jews who are anti-vaxxers. Okay. And, you know, they feel that the vaccine isn't helpful. Uh, yeah. But I think it's really important to say that almost every Jewish leader, whether Orthodox, 
conservative, reformer, many other other Jewish groups, all say the vaccine is safe and effective and yeah. should be taken. Yeah. Um, and there's really important you know values in Judaism about making sure that you value that you value the, the life of others. Yeah. And, and the only way to do that is right. is to have the vaccine. Yeah. Couching it as love thy neighbor has been yeah. has been quite effective in some conversations I've had. That it, you don't get the vaccine for yourself, you get it for all the other people you're going to encounter throughout the day. Right. And and also that you that you take the medical advice of doctors is is an important Jewish value. And you know it's funny because like. You, uh, Israel has been very, really effective mm-hmm. uh, in, in vaccinating. And, and yeah. I, I was reading up about what their strategy. And so one thing that they were doing, which is so interesting, was uh, they, were really, uh, had a, they had a really big campaign in sort of the Orthodox Jewish uh, community, mostly, mostly the ultra-Orthodox communities. And the way it usually works in Israel is the ultra-Orthodox communities have their sort of their neighborhoods where it's just that group. Yeah, and so you can understand why a community might become an anti-vaxxer community because that's all that that community is hearing. And when that community pushes out, say, modernity or, or modern ideas, then any kind of there could be an idea that the whole community just sort of takes up on, yeah. right? And so, so sometimes that's an anti-vaxxing idea. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that they've done is that the, these are, these communities they, they communicate to each other in these interesting ways through um, a, a clever use of posters, right? They're constantly putting up new posters. If you ever go to a place called like Meir Sharim, which is an ultra-Orthodox community near Jerusalem or in Jerusalem, you'll see like all these poster boards and all these posters and big black Hebrew letters everywhere. And that's, a, that's their style of communication. They're not against using technology, and they do use it frequently, but, but, but like on Shabbat, for example, they will not use anything. Huh. Technology. So this is a way they can still communicate to each other. And the poster is not considered technology. Apparently, at least not. They can't put the posters up on Shabbat, but they can oh, they can okay. read them on Shabbat. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. So uh, one thing that was going on was that these anti-vaxxer groups were putting up posters about the vaccine is bad. And so what the Israel government did, they just put up posters on top of that. And every time an anti-vaccine poster went up, they put a poster mm-hmm. on top of that, saying that 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 the head rabbis of Israel all agreed the vaccine is safe and effective. That sounds like an. Ex- Extraordinarily slow Facebook conversation. It, it is, and, it, and it, but un, yes, and it, but it works. But it works. It works. Yeah, that's the anti-vaxxers in in these Jewish Israel Jewish communities gave up. Yeah, and and they were able to sort of convince the ultra orthodox community to get the vaccine. Okay. Now there already were a number of ultra orthodox communities out there that were already like not anti-vaxxers, right? So I'm yeah. talking about communities within communities here, because mm-hmm. uh, I don't want I don't want to paint you know the ultra Orthodox to be right. of one mind here because they definitely were not, but that's sort of one of the methods that the Israel government used okay. to convince them. But but that being said, like you know, the, the Jewish sort of faith is has already kind of laid down the groundwork of why vaccines are important and valuable, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and so we just we're not having this this the same problem that you see in other places. Yeah, well that's great. I mean that's wonderful news, and I think I think with the evangelical church. A lot of times they're they're already pre-poised for conflict, you know, and and so they're if you come in and say the government wants you to do this, they're going to say no, even <laughs> if it's in their own interest, you right, know. And so right. and so one of the 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 tools in the toolbox can be to try to differentiate this from a political thing and say you know start off by saying this is not about Republican and Democrat. This is about how you can protect your family, how you can protect your fellow churchgoers, you know, how you can protect um, the other people you work with. 
I also think a big part of it is to show that this choice of vaccination is not against your faith. It's how you express your faith because there's a real identity of being a very faithful person. And if you were to say, just, just step away from your faith for a minute and do this, you'll get nowhere. But if you say this is an expression of what Christ commanded when he said, love each other as I've loved you, well, there, that, you're going to start, you're going to be speaking their language. And I don't know if the posters worked that way at all, but to say that these communities, these rabbis have said it's safe, right? In the yeah. same way, you want to find someone that already speaks to their community to say they're on board. So evangelicals, for example, um, what's his name? Franklin Graham came out as pro-vaccine against COVID. He is someone that they listen to already in a great way. So if I went up to them and said, Barack Obama said it's good, they're going to say, oh, hell no, I'm not going to be a part of that. But to say Franklin Graham said it's good, they're like, okay, I'm listening. You know, so to, to find a spokesperson that, that they trust is a big, big part of it. Well, all right. We want, I think that concludes our, our episode. I think so, yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, well, uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. And once again, if you want to see Matt or myself in action, you can. Apparently, if you're vaccinated, you can see Matt in action in person. With the new CDC recommendations that came out today on May 13th, uh, it might be even bigger crowds now. We don't know yet exactly how that'll live out. But yeah, you can see us Sunday mornings live or in person at uh, First Presbyterian Church of and I'm, we're, my community is still online, uh, and so you can see us over on our website at frozenchosen.org. Nice. And I just want to give a big thank you to the Mutra Brothers, who's been really helpful and with the music in this podcast, and also uh, James Brown, who designed our logo. All right, everyone. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Mm-hmm.